Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs was on the point in trying to ensure the security of the 2020 election. And it was that work and his defense of the integrity of the results after the election that led to his summary dismissal by President Trump. We sat down this week to talk about past and future threats to the election process and what it means to our democracy. Here's that conversation. Chris Krebs, it's good to see you again. Welcome to the Axe Files. You're obviously well known for the work that you did for the government and around the elections, and we're going to have plenty to talk about there. But I'm interested sort of in what people don't know about you. And so I just want to go through a little biography here and, and ask you about the Krebs and <laughs> your, uh, your roots. Okay. All I know is that you grew up in the South, and a whole bunch of you went to the University of Virginia. That's right. Yep. I am uh, third-generation UVA. My grandfather from Birmingham, Alabama, uh, went back in the, the 20s or so. And then my dad, uh, he went as well. Uh, and then my older brother went. I've got uncles and aunts. And God willing, my children will How far back do the Krebs go in, uh, in Alabama and the South and so on. So I, oh gosh, this was back in middle school. I think I did the, 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 the family research and the history. They actually came in through Pascagoula, Mississippi. And there's a, a fort called Krebs Fort, the, also called the Old Spanish Fort. And uh, that was back, Hugo Ernestus Krebs came in from the, it was actually the Alsace region, so, region, so a little French-German thing going on. But it's the, the 1800s, mid-1800s, I think. Uh-huh. Pre-Civil War, post-Civil yes, War? pre-Civil War. In fact, um, there is a, you know, it, it's almost a um, you know, national treasure type claim back in family history that that um, one of my ancestors actually invented the cotton gin first. Uh-huh. B.D. Eli Whitney to uh, the game, but didn't. Why did Whitney the, get all the accolades? I, you know, I think it's, uh, he probably had a better patent attorney. um and did your did your were your folks engaged in the war on the confederate side or not that i've discovered in uh in our research both my you know eventually they moved into alabama my dad was from birmingham my mom grew up in northwest alabama so mo brooks territory Mm -hmm. uh, florence alabama she was born though in phoenix city which is right down southeast alabama right across the river from columbus georgia and you what did your folks do? Uh, so I grew up in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and my dad uh, was in various roles uh, in the financial services industry. 
and also uh, it, it a prior point was involved in the uh, the heavy equipment industry, so forklifts and you know construction equipment, and so a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and uh, my mom took care of us much to her. How many of us were there? Oh, so I had older brother, younger brother. Mm -hmm. And so everybody has since kind of migrated up the eastern seaboard and everybody's somewhere in Virginia right now. And you were, as I see here and what I read, kind of a jock (laughs) that this was your claim to fame in, in, in high school. Big track star, I, uh, football player, linebacker. Well, I, I played uh, I played football in high school, but I think my athletic achievements were probably stronger on the track and field side. And uh, I was a pole vaulter, and still, as far as I understand, still hold the school record, and uh, was the state champion my senior year. And then went that that kind of was my hook to get into UVA. Pole vaulted right into University yep. of Virginia. Yep, huh? got me right in. And you studied environmental studies, is that right? Environmental sciences, yep. The, uh, so, <laughs> so it, and that is actually related to uh, my, my track and field career or short-lived career. <laughs> I, uh, I had a, a, a small uh, scholarship, and after you know, a few months, it was clear to me that my future was not in, uh, in, in pole vaulting or track and field. <laughs> I don't know. Program. How does one make a future in pole uh, vaulting? You know, there's, you know, you can, Sergey Bubka, a Russian <laughs> yeah. uh, pole vaulter, uh, was, was a bit of an idol, uh, in throughout, throughout high school. And I figured, Hey, you know, you know, you do this well enough and there's an Olympics, uh, possibility down, down the road, but that, that took a lot more work than I think <laughs> I was willing to put into it. Having, uh, uh, matriculated at UVA and, uh, so after, I think it was about January of my uh, first year, I uh, left the team and my dad said, okay, well, um, you know, now we got to plug this gap of the financial aid that you lost. And uh, UVA as a participant, it, then I think it's still around, but it was known as the Common Market Program. So it's basically kind of an open market where uh, college states and universities kind of look at what they're what where they have some gaps in their in their academic offerings and they look at other states that are strong and they kind of bid back and forth and my dad said you know these are the four or five majors you can pick to be in to be in this program or we got to find another way to plug the gap financially and uh, and I I picked environmental science it was interesting I you know enjoyed the coursework but of course it didn't lead me to uh, the career I'm in now no Apparently, it led you to the Caribbean to be a scuba instructor. <laughs> I, I, I also, that was uh, one of the, the jobs I had in college, was a manager of a dive shop, the University Dive Center. I took, uh, uh, to get a credit or two for a January term, uh, took a, a certification course, and then ended up enjoying it and, and working for the last two years or so of uh, college at the dive center. And I... You know, my kind of game plan, just to also think back, like 99 and 2000, it wasn't the strongest job market, particularly in D.C. There's a little uh, dot-com bust thing going on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my plan was go down to the Caribbean, dive master for a little bit, and I, I, I ended up down there on, an, on Andros Island, the largest island of the Bahamas, which, you know, uh, strangely enough, is where my wife and I uh, honeymooned hmm. several, several years later. But we got down there, and it was more about teaching, uh, you know, fifth graders basics of snorkeling and you know what a you know what a reef is and you know aquatic 
uh, not that that's a bad life. thing. No, it just it you know it wasn't for me. Yeah. So so two weeks later, uh, I'm back up in D.C. or I'm back up in the states, and then I end up in D.C. Uh, and and that was pre nine eleven, and and that was kind of that. Was and was it. that something that you wanted to do? Was it did it, was it in your mind that you were going to be in public service? I you know I think I had always had a public service bent. Why? Uh, and I. You know, I for for one, the I think like a lot of kids, the security side of things, the the spies, the security side, the danger of it is is interesting. And I I was a uh, voracious reader of the Clancy books and Robert Ludlum books and loved all that. So you know, high espionage and intrigue was something that I was interested in, but never really thought that it would be much of a career, um, and didn't think of the FBI Better or the than intelligence. Thing, probably, but, this yeah. is this is true. Or the intelligence community or, or the military. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so I come up to D.C. and I'm working for a maritime consulting firm, which, you know, post uh, Exxon Valdez and the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 required uh, shipping companies that were operating in U.S. waters to have incident response plans and designated people that they would call if they had an incident uh, that would manage the, the response to an oil spill or an accident. And so that, that was me. I was a qualified individual, um, which meant that I had to, there were 24 hours, you know, every couple weeks where I was on call, uh, and we had clients all over the, all, all over the world. And then 9-11 happens. And by then I'm working for a, a contractor to the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard then gets realigned from, uh, under the Department of Transportation where it was pre 9-11 and then it gets shifted over to the Department of Homeland Security. And all of a sudden I'm part of this massive homeland security contracting apparatus and in the critical infrastructure space. And then I decide to go to law school. And why? Well, uh, it, you know, again, this goes a little bit back to family. My grandfather was an attorney and, uh, in Alabama and, you know, always thought the world of him. And as I got up to D.C., it was also very clear to me that particularly if you're applying for government jobs, having a couple extra letters after your name Mm -hmm. is a qualification in and of itself. Uh, And as I looked at the different options of uh, masters of public policy, even an MBA, the way I viewed it was that a a JD going to law school would open uh, the most avenues for me. And whether I'm a practicing attorney or policy or something along those lines, as long as I want to stay in D.C., I figured... It, was, it would be the most helpful. So you didn't go with the idea that you were going to be a lawyer? I may have, but it, it took me about <laughs> a month or two <laughs> um, of my 1L year to be like, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be the, I'm not going to slog through, uh, you know, seven years of associateship just to get to, to part the partner track. I, I was much more interested in the policy side of things. Well, you, you must have done something right because you ended up in the administration right out of law school. I was in the Bush administration, right. I was, uh, I, I was juggling offers. I had an opportunity to come in and be a part of the inaugural honors program at the Department of Homeland Security in 2007 or so. Uh, it was modeled after a longstanding program at the Department of Justice. And so that was a career path. And then just due to some of the, the connections, relationships I had in, in D.C., I also 
got an opportunity to come in uh, to the Bush administration as a political appointee. What, what were those connections? What uh, the the Department of Homeland Security's uh, deputy chief of staff at the time uh, was a guy who had gotten to know, and just through kind of nothing more than relentless networking in mm-hmm. D.C. and uh, in the homeland security space, and going to various American Bar Association events, just meeting people, and. Um, this was the second half of the second term right. of the Bush administration. Yeah. Right. And, and that, that is when, you know, people are starting to look at, you know, on the way out rather than the way in. And so there was more opportunity. Back in 2007, your initial assignment had to do with chemical facility, anti-terrorism standards. So this department itself was an outgrowth of 9-11. And I remember because I was in the White House mm-hmm. from 2009 to 2011, how focused we were on the terrorist threat. Uh, Tell me about that and how much, you know, how intense that concern was. These were threats from, obviously, overseas, not the homegrown terrorism that we're seeing today. Well, there there was a a bit of a hangover from Oklahoma City and the Murrah building bombing that that was of concern, uh, particularly for the control of uh, things like ammonium nitrate. And that's what Mm -hmm. was used. Which was what was used to make the explosives that blew up the federal courthouse. Yep, mixed with fuel oil and in the back of a van. Uh, But at the time, yeah, to your point, 2001 through... I, you know, the entirety of the Bush administration and, and into the Obama administration, there was a focus on Al Qaeda and the threat that Al Qaeda and, uh, you know, the radical uh, terrorists posed to the homeland. And there were a number of it, you know, just specific again to the critical infrastructure space, there were significant programs developed. Uh, a, a, an entire regulatory program was developed around chemical facilities to ensure that they were not targeted, that that chemicals were not stolen or sabotaged, that would pose great harm to the United States. And sitting where we are here in New York City, just down the road in New Jersey on the turnpike is, you know, considered one of the most dangerous half miles or whatever it is uh, in, in the country due to some of the chemical facilities and chlorine plants, that there was a concern that, that uh, you know, the bad guys could come in, blow one of those facilities up, and the toxic inhalation hazards could drift across the river into Manhattan, and you you would have a significant significant uh, casualty rate. How much uh, you you talk about the programs that were developed? I don't you know because they're not visible to people. We just sort of take for granted that we were at threat to these potential attacks, and we're less so now. This is not a top of mind concern to people. How much is that the result of geopolitical changes, the sort of obliteration of uh, al-Qaeda in, you know, Afghanistan and, and, and Pakistan, which we now, you know, we'll see what happens now. But how much of it was as a result of that? And how much was it a result of things that were done that really hardened our defenses? Sitting where we are now, we have that kind of the ability to look backwards. So hindsight 2020, I think there, were, there was a combination of factors. You, you touched on the, the geopolitical piece, you know, the, the threat at the time because Russia was not a, a mm-hmm. big player on the stage throughout the, the Bush administration. 
uh, China was still kind of refactoring itself and getting so it, it was much more focused on uh, the Middle East and some of the the terror threats. There were you know again for for chemical uh, concerns, there were regular reports of terrorists weaponizing chlorine canisters that were used for water disinfectant. Um, in you know in, in fact, there's a I remember back in the in in the in the aughts uh, going to Chicago. And uh, visiting one of those facilities and, and the amount of chlorine they had there, again, it was a significant con- concern. Yet uh, they had the significant protections in place, appropriate protections in place to ensure that they could not be a threat to the citizens of Chicago. So as I look back, I would think that there's a combination of things. Yes, we took the fight directly to al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda was dismantled. And, you know, in its place, you have ISIS, which is much more of a decentralized threat. And it's more of a kind of a, a nation state rather than a cult. Uh, like Al-Qaeda. You have a separate set. You have cyber threats, of course, that are the, you know, just walloping American businesses and uh, government agencies on a a daily basis. So I think the threat landscape has shifted, but it's expanded more than anything. And so we have a a broader set of threats that we have to consider. And, And by the way, you know, there are also natural hazards that we have to consider. And, and, you know, Hurricane uh, in natural disasters of, of tornadoes and earthquakes and things like that still remain a a risk that particularly those in, in Florida and elsewhere have to think about on a daily basis. I mean, that, I, the first six months of my time on the job, well, probably more starting in August of 17, but in the, in the Trump administration was was responding to hurricanes. You know, I made half a dozen trips to Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Maria. So you know, the, the critical infrastructure can be, and the, the homeland writ large, can be impacted by not just radical terrorists here, particularly international terrorists, but the, there are technological and man-made threats. Yeah. Consider. You, you went into private consulting for years before you went uh, back into government in the Trump administration, and you were advising various companies on their vulnerabilities. You ultimately were director of cybersecurity policy for Microsoft. But talk to me, you you sort of hinted at it. How vulnerable are both our companies, our our corporations, and uh, sort of critical infrastructure? How how vulnerable are they today to hackers, to cybersecure, cyber, you know, attacks, to ransomware Attacks. How big? How much should people be concerned about that? I was at the desk, or at least on the job, until noon on January twentieth of two thousand nine. Uh, you know, went to uh, Andrews Air Force Base, saw former President Bush. Uh, you know, get on to what was used to be Air Force One, and then fly off to the ranch in Texas. Uh, and then at that point, you know, just like the rest of the the political brethren. We, uh, we kind of wandered the wilderness then of the private sector for a while. And so I, I went with uh, a former boss and set up a consulting practice. And I, at the time, it had, the, the way that you already hit on this, but the focus was on the physical threats to the homeland and the budgets aligned with that reality. And so in, in the part of the department I was in, which was known as the National Protection Programs Directorate or its its predecessor of PrEP, but it was kind of an island of misfit toys. And it had the bits and pieces of DHS that didn't fit into Coast Guard or TSA or CBP. And so it was, it's just kind of a, a loose aggregation. And, and 
the big piece was infrastructure protection. And then there was a little piece of cybersecurity that had come over partly from the Government Services Administration, uh, which was the emergency response part for cyber. And then there was a, a communications piece that came down from the NSA, but it was quite small. But it was still at that point clear to me, at least, and I think many of us, that that the the digital risk, that cybersecurity threats were were going to be a significant part of any any sort of national resilience approach. And 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 at the end of the Bush administration, there was a comprehensive national cybersecurity initiative. Uh, that was launched by the NSA and DHS that started deploying tools across civilian networks. It was called the Einstein Program. That's when you started seeing the budgets tick up. That's when you started seeing the national strategy attention at the very beginning of the Obama administration, where you had a number of different experts come in and kind of assess where we were and issue uh, strategies. And you had Howard Schmidt come in. You had all these luminaries in the cybersecurity field come in and and try to set, okay, this is the new game plan. And over the next several years, as it became clear that China was eating our lunch, uh, stealing intellectual uh, Mm -hmm. property, Uh, and then uh, President Obama sat down with President Xi, and they they had their uh, their kind of moment of, uh, you know, this is what's not going to happen anymore. You are not going to take our intellectual property and then turn it over to your national champions for monetization, which is what they had done for for years and years of just commercial commercializing stolen intellectual property and then supplanting U.S. and Western companies uh, out of out of the market. And there were a number of different initiatives happening. And, and I just happened, you know, whether it was through, you know, just being in the right place at the right time or knowing where the, the puck was going to go, ended up being on a number of these different initiatives, including helping the administration and helping the Obama administration and helping NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, develop the, the NIST cybersecurity framework. And this was 2013-14. Let me, let me just stop you for a second. I know this is called the Einstein program, but you weren't necessarily an Einstein when you started about this. You became educated about it. Now people look at you and as one of the foremost experts in this field of cybersecurity. How did that happen? And Was it that you saw that you, you chose to get educated because you saw what a looming and growing risk this was? or I, I have always felt that in part I am where I am because I'm a middle child. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm always seeking compromising, uh, compromise. I'm always bringing people together, try to get to the bottom of issues. And, you know, it's a, cybersecurity is a complex technical field. There's a, uh, there's a book in the mid-1980s called Neuromancer, and it was the uh, William Gibson first coined the term cyberspace. But there's another line in this book uh, about the unthinkable complexity of cyberspace and the technologies we use. And the challenge that I've always seen is that the the technical side, the the true technical experts, which I am not a technical expert, but the true technical experts, when you're talking to the people that are actually making the policy decisions and the national level strategic decisions, when they don't have that technical understanding, you've got to have a Rosetta Stone. And mm-hmm. so I saw an opportunity of being able to play that gap, Translate. translating yeah. complex technical concepts into words and narratives that the policymakers can understand. And that was always one of my top priorities when I was 
in the last administration was communicating with the Hill, communicating with with the media, communicating with stakeholders in simple terms that, uh, you know, effectively at a, at a fifth grade reading level of you know what we're trying to accomplish, why it's important and, and what we need to do. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I want to stick with your narrative, but I think it's a good place to ask, how do you think the government has done? How do you think from those early days when you were beginning to glimpse the future, how are we doing? Because you said earlier that our businesses are being pummeled by ransomware hackers. So... What are we doing and what aren't we doing? The way that I think about this is that, A, the technology challenges we have, it, it is not a static environment, meaning that any progress we make is going to be matched by someone that's seeking to take advantage of us, get to our money, get to the things we care about, including our intellectual property. But anyway, you cut it, sitting where we are in 2022 and looking back to 2012, which I think is when it really was becoming clear on a on a national stage. Uh, we have absolutely made progress. I mean, there is a vibrant cybersecurity ecosystem. There are you know national conversations. There are congressional hearings on the regular. We are harder targets as a result. We have absolutely made progress. I, I have board briefings on a monthly basis with all sorts of companies. You know, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission is proposing regulations that requires cybersecurity expertise on publicly traded boards. I mean, to think where we've come in the last 10 years. Now, everyone wishes that there that we were doing more, that we're doing that we were we were moving faster. But but the fact remains that uh, you know, businesses are, you know, what is their first principle or their, their mission? They're there to make money. And sometimes security is seen as a cost center and, and friction. So we're, we're doing better. We can do more. And as I've already mentioned, that the challenge we will always have is that there is an intelligent adversary on the other side that is always poking holes, that is looking for us to make a misstep or somehow they can exploit and extract what they want. And that, that's really, as I see it at least, Ransomware is just a manifestation of a bad guy that's figured out how to monetize a vulnerable or misconfigured system or some stupid human trick where an employee clicks on an email and provides credentials or a password or something like that. And really that's been, I think, as I've said it, made up of three things. Ransomware is just the fact that the systems we use are are still a little too hard to secure and a little too easy to exploit. Cryptocurrency, and this is where, you know, the, the crypto bros get all upset with me, but, you know, cryptocurrency really has facilitated the extraction of value and wealth from the West. And then the third piece is Russia. Russia has given a safe haven to a number of these cyber criminals to operate with impunity just as long as you don't hack Russian or Commonwealth of Independent State countries mm -hmm. to the point where some of the ransomware, the malware that's actually deployed into target or victim systems does a check. And what does it check for? It checks for Russian language packages 
on the Windows system. And if it finds a Cyrillic language or Russian language package installed on the machine, it says, nope, we don't want any of that, exits the process, and it moves on. Um, and what's in, uh, explain what's in it for Russia as a state actor to harbor... I, so I see three, at least three possible objectives that the Russians would get out of a vibrant cyber crime organization or set of organizations that are that are attacking the West. First is that it actually builds a almost a strategic cyber reserve force that they may be able to call on down the road. So it's on-the-job training. It's constant targeting and understanding of the vulnerabilities of the West. And and it doesn't require a whole lot of curation. It's just go go do your thing and and go harry them. Which leads to the second point of it actually aligns with the strategic objectives of the Kremlin, and that is to destabilize the West, to constantly destabilize the West and the confidence that the American people, that the Western citizens have in their government's ability to protect them. And that continues to be a refrain we hear from businesses is, you know, if this was a missile, uh, the, the U.S. military would respond or would take that, that missile out. But instead, we just continue to let it happen. And then the third piece, which is, I think, increasingly relevant right now, is that cybercrime brings money home. It is a great way to bring in Western cash into Russia, um, absent any sort of relevant economy or industry. That just brings cash in, but it also is going to continue to drive participation in that ransomware economy because you look across the street and you see, you know, Vlad across the street with a with a Maserati and you want one too, or you want an Aston Martin or something like that. So you're going to get into that game. And, and until we break the chain, any of those three aspects of, of making ourselves harder targets and, and more secure here, the second is we have to figure out how to get a better grip on the cryptocurrency economy that's outside of the traditional fiat regulatory oversight. And the third is, you know, make Russia actually take care of the the criminality that's occurring within its own borders. And if they don't do that, then we have to impose some sort of cost on them. And whether that's the the military and cyber command going after the the criminal, the gangs or, you know, taking their assets away as it transits whatever non-Russian uh, wallets or exchanges, you know, you, you have to make it so it's it hurts to do this and it's not profitable anymore. Uh, let me, you, I saw you quoted somewhere as saying you thought the war in Ukraine would actually up the incentive for the Russians to encourage this kind of attack. I think so. And I think, you know, you know just stepping back for a little bit, you know, myself included, uh, a number of us thought that there would be a, a more visible cyber component to the Russian invasion yes. of Ukraine. Why hasn't there been? I think what you'll find is that, well, they actually did do a quite a bit of cyber operational activity on Ukraine. Um, there, there were a number of what's known as wiper attacks, which is a destructive malware where it comes in to a bank or a government agency and destroys servers and machines and knocks them offline for a period of time. I think the most visible was a, uh, a satellite communications provider known as Viasat, mm-hmm. where they were able to reach into the system and it sounds like they were able to you know, knock off or, or brick, you know, send offline some of the some of the modems. So there was absolutely activity. But, you know, I, th- I think the lesson learned here probably is that when you have a full-blown kinetic war, when bombs are dropping, you know, missiles are flying, 
guns are going off. The kinetic piece overshadows any of the digital piece. Mm -hmm. But there also was a lot of conjecture that they would attack us. There was so so that gets into the second piece, and, and there was always that. What is Russia going to do inside Ukraine? And then the, to your point, the second uh, aspect was okay. What are they going to do to the West? And I think the 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 intelligence community and the administration was very concerned, and they there was a marked shift in their messaging right around March twenty third. In fact, President Biden actually went to the podium and said that there was a, a you know evolving intelligence right. that, that there was that cyber is something that the russians may use against the west and that was as i understood it uh, because i had never seen anything like that i hadn't seen president trump i hadn't really seen president obama be that clear and stark in fact in that night uh, president biden i believe went to the business roundtable and talked to all the major ceos that were gathering in dc uh, so, so there there was a concern there was a shift in intent from what i gather um, but but we still ne- haven't necessarily seen that manifestation here, which is good news for the West, right? Good news for us. We've gone shields up, as Jen Easterly, the new director of CISTA, uh, is calling it, that, that this is not business as usual. Business executives need to be ready for anything and take security seriously. So is, is the lack of visible action a function of the shields going up, or is it a function of the Russians worried about retribution – uh, not wanting to take that step. So the diplomatic way to say it's probably both, but mm-hmm. I think it's more likely. Yeah, it's like the political way to say it. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> the political way to say it, right, is I know is that both. kind of thing. The, I think I think it's, it's more likely that they have not, within the Kremlin, determined they need to cross that line yet because they know that it will invoke a response from the U.S. and Mm -hmm. from the West. And they have a degree of, despite what you may hear in congressional hearings where they're not afraid of us, they keep, I think they are afraid of us. I think that that if if we were to, if they were to come at us pretty hard and direct and visibly, then then we have a set of options. So it's, there is an element of mutually assured destruction. Mutually assured pain, for Mm -hmm. sure. Not destruction, but pain. Okay. yeah, so I mean, just to kind of round this one out, I, I would not take any of this off the table just yet because I think the continued pressure on the Kremlin through sanctions, continued support via lethal aid to the Ukrainians and NATO expansion, including Finland and Sweden, is going to put economic and political pressure on Putin and the Kremlin and their decision calculus is going to continue to change as their avenues are closed off to them. So I, I obviously, I, I want to ask you about your experience uh, starting in 2016, 2017, when you joined the Trump administration, you were the founding uh, director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And as such, you had great visibility into what particularly the Russians, but not limited to the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians were were doing. But certainly around the election mm-hmm. of 2016, and when you came to that, you entered an administration where the president had been elected, and that election was, the, the Russian interference in that election was a major issue. First of all, did you believe that as you took office, did you believe the Russians had? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was at, I was at Microsoft and Microsoft saw a significant amount of the Russian activity 
whether it was transiting Microsoft, you know, cloud services or mail accounts or things like that. And I had even at Microsoft had been targeted by Russians in the in the late 2016. So it was a no brainer. Now, was it clear the extent to the activity? No. And I think that was when January of 2017, when the intelligence community assessment really laid out in very stark terms that there were three aspects to the Russian interference. The first was that targeting of election systems in the U.S. The second was the hack and leak campaign against uh, the DNC and the Clinton campaign. And then the third was just this broader destabilizing disinformation campaign and you know trying to pit Americans at each other. I mean, that it's incontrovertible what's in the intelligence community assessment, despite all the other noise right now. Well, one of the people who didn't accept it was <laughs> your boss, uh, the president of the United States, who went to Helsinki in 2018 and stood next to Vladimir Putin and basically said, I take Putin's word over the intelligence community. I don't see why he would have hacked or they would have hacked our election. What were you thinking when you saw that? Like literally what you just, what are you thinking? Like I was sitting in Arlington, Virginia, just sitting there watching this. I was like, what the hell is happening? And, and of course the next day there's an errata released, right? Oh, he left off a word. Yeah. He, he omitted a key word of, you know, why he wouldn't do it or whatever. It was just, it was, it was farcical. There, there were moments like that throughout uh, my, my tenure and my time in the department of, of you really have to think through, it's a constant kind of gain loss analysis in your head of, can I continue to do this? And, you know, there's been a lot of pushback on es- Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, for his book, you know, some of the things he didn't say, some of the things he did. And and I can relate to a good bit of that. You know, you we're, we're national security professionals. And yes, there are moments when you need to speak out. And there are others where, uh, at least from where you're sitting, when you're in the moment and you're working through the process and you're focused on the job where it's like, I just, I, I have to keep doing this mission. And that, you know, that, that was the biggest part, that was the hardest part. You know, I had a great job at at Microsoft, but I I felt like I had an opportunity to serve, to make a difference. And given the opportunity, uh, I I should take it. And so I I told my wife, yeah, let's do, you know, I'll do this for 12 months, maybe 18 months. And at the 18 month mark, I, you know, I kind of sheepishly. She probably regretted that she didn't have you sign something. Well, I, you know, sheepishly, I come to her and say, like, I, I, I need to stay. And she got it. She understood what we were doing on the election security front. There was the 2018 midterms. And I was, you know, I was passionate about it. I knew we were making a difference. It was important work. And, and she, she saw that and she, she acknowledged that. And she, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll forever be in, uh, in, in the debt of this great woman for many, many things. Yeah. Sometimes, I wonder if the wisdom of having five kids is one of those, but nonetheless, <laughs> let you know, standing by me and supporting Talk about me. hardening your defenses. Yeah, you know, that, that, uh, yeah. Well, we didn't talk about this earlier. Perhaps it was implicit, but you come from a, a Republican family. You, you're a Republican. I know that you were pr- approaching this as a an American, um, but how how did you process this? Uh, from a, the standpoint of someone who is, you know, a lifelong Republican from a family that was probably generations of Republicans. So, 
you know, maybe we forget these things, but in 2016, there was a pretty stark divide within the Republican Party mm-hmm. of the the Trumps, the never Trumps. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of in between. And I have, while I have identified, voted, you know, you know, historically Republican, I'm not an active pol- in the political space. I've never really donated to any political campaigns. I think I I, I donated once to Susan Collins, like 20 bucks uh, back in 2006 or seven. But beyond that, I, I've never participated in a campaign, never, you know, gone and canvassed or knocked doors or anything like that. And so I've tended to kind of always been an afterthought in the political conversations. Nonetheless, is in the run up to 2016 or, or rather the, the transition uh, is John Kelly gets announced as the DHS secretary. I, um, you know, I was like, look, I, I respect this man. Uh, my my dad's side of the family has a, a history in the Marine Corps, and and you know I knew enough about John Kelly to say, hey, you know I could I could work for him, and uh, so the the opportunity came to serve, and and it, you know I'll, I'll I'll be frank, there there wasn't you know unlike I think probably this administration that there there wasn't a huge line, uh, and of course I'm sure I'll get pushback from from others, but there there was not a huge line at the door. The, from the classical Republican mm-hmm. political operatives that were they were willing to come in. So I, you know, again, I, I saw an opportunity to serve, make a difference. I took it. And, um, and you know, n- not a day went by where there wasn't some challenge that would, that would kind of knock us off mission and course by a couple degrees and have to recalibrate. And that challenge shifted from sort of responding to questions about the 2016 election to trying to harden the electoral mechanisms uh, so that it didn't happen again in 2020. Well, in, in 2018, before that, right? Mm-hmm. So as we came in, as I came in uh, in March of 2017, this was just after Jay Johnson, Secretary Johnson, Homeland Security, had designated election infrastructure as critical infrastructure. And it it you know he knew what he was doing. I think ultimately he did the absolute right job. But much like almost everything else, it, the reaction, the immediate reaction was visceral. I got a significant amount of pushback from Republican secretaries of state. They were saying, "How dare you try to regulate and take over elections?" Article One, Section Four, which of course was never never the intent. Uh, it was instead to provide them prioritized intelligence analysis and support and security services and things like that. So we spent a year and a half of crisscrossing the country, hat in hand, meeting with election officials and and really first trying to understand what their challenges were, what they were suffering, you know, struggling with, but also reassuring them that, no, we're the worst words you want to hear from a bureaucrat. We're here to help. Mm-hmm. And and we we truly were, and I think we did provide support and help throughout the the 2018 election, and and even up into the 2020 election. Um, it just took a while to break through the noise and and c- make that connection where we could establish the trust. And there were really two elements to this, right? One was to actually harden the system so they would not be hacked, right? Uh, and you promoted the idea that there needed to be paper ballot backups for all of these systems. And by, I think, 2020, 95% of them had paper ballot in backups. In part facilitated by COVID and some of the, the mail-in ballot and the you know, mail-in voting adjustments made. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. 
And now, back to the show. The second piece was the disinformation piece uh, that we saw in 2016. So let's fast forward to your experience uh, during the election because you you succeeded in large ways in hardening the system. But the president himself was propagating well in advance of the election Mm – concerns about the integrity of the election. So that was a whole different challenge. So look, I mean, you're, you're hearing it still today from the former president. You heard it in 2016. Stop the steal was a, a phrase that was coined in 2016. They just reinvigorated it for, for 2020. But if you go back to June or so of 2020, and you, and you, you start picking up the themes that mail-in voting is going to lead to fraud. And so the president would start pushing, the former president would start pushing these narratives. And then somebody in the political apparatus would be like, oh, well, not that kind of voting. Because remember, the majority of Republican voters or a significant number of Republican voters in Florida vote by mail. Yeah, man. Republicans in Florida were masters at absentee balloting. And and so it it just, but the expectations were set. And so uh, Kate Starbird, a researcher and professor at the University of Washington coined this phrase of participatory disinformation, where there are three parties. The top is you have the elites, and Trump is at the elite level. Then you have influencers, and that's like the Dinesh D'Souza types. And then at the it, then you have the, the voting populace. And so the expectation of fraud was set by the elites in the summer, which primed the pump for the masses to get out there and look for anything suspicious. You know, you, you hear about suitcases mm-hmm. and uh, Sharpies in Arizona and, and you know, all these different theories that they were, they were primed to see something funky. And then the influencers really start amplifying, just like boo, boo, really boosting uh, the messaging around the, the conspiracy theories. And so the same researcher, Kate Starbert, has been thinking through this, this similar analogy of, of spaghetti sauce, where the individual noodles in a bowl are these different theories. Like I've said, Sharpie Gate and suitcases in, in Atlanta and broken pipes and all these other things. And then the, the, the narrative is all mixed up in a sauce and you throw it against the wall. And some of the noodles will stick. Some will fall off. But whatever you're left with is that stain on the wall. And that stain on the wall is the fraud. It's the implication that their fraud, something untoward happened. You can't really describe it. You can't really accurately convey it. But it happened and the stink, the stain remains. And, and that's where we are right now. You know, none of these theories were single-handedly or individually intended to change the outcome or change the narrative or change the mindset. It was just undermining the broader understanding of what happened and have everyone lose focus and, and, and lose a grip of what, what the truth is. And what were you thinking during the summer of 2020 and into the fall when you were, when you were doing everything you could to, to ensure the integrity of the election? You had reasonable confidence that everything that, that – or much of what should have been done was being done – and you saw this uh, disinformation effort to try and turn people against the idea that it would be a free and fair election. I mean, what kind of conversations did you have around your your we conference were, table there? So we were focused principally 
on foreign interference of, of Russia, Iran, and even China of interfering with the election. And, and there were there was Russian activity. There was Iranian activity. I'll point you to October 20th, 21st, 22nd, 23rd, whatever it was, where they sent out a bunch of emails claiming to be the Proud Boys, and it gets tracked back to the Iranians. That was a voter intimidation operation, just, mm-hmm. again, a disinformation operation. So we were really focused on identifying these things, getting information on trusted information out to the American voter. And if you think back, the majority of the disinformation up until even, it was even December or so of 2020 and going into January, the majority of the disinformation was still about dead Venezuelan dictators Mm -hmm. and Italian satellites and server farms in Germany that were raided by the CIA and defended by the U.S. Army. These were conspiracy theories. Yes, Mm -hmm. and these were all, and this is what the Sidney Powell's of the world, and Mike Lindell to this day still contains. my pillow guy. Yeah, and so these, these were the narratives, and they just didn't stick politically. They were hard to describe that. Again, let's go back to the beginning and that unthinkable complexity. Technology is hard to describe, and particularly if it's being misappropriated and, and being able to describe how these these threats or these activities happen. And so I've seen it as an A-B test and, you know, trying, testing different narratives, see which one works, see which one you want to promote. I still think 2020, in, in retrospect, looks a lot like an A-B test where the foreign threats – just didn't land. They didn't stick. They were too hard to to describe and, and really stick. Instead, what worked? Domestic fraud. In the midst of this, you issued a statement from CISA, essentially certifying the integrity of the election from your vantage point. Tell me about making that decision, because you knew what was going to happen. You knew how it was going to be received by the man at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So this story gets a little skewed, I think. So we have these things called coordinating councils. And the coordinating council for the election infrastructure subsector was made up of everyone under the sun in the election community from uh, the, the state and local officials to the vendors. Everybody comes together. It was their statement. It was not a CISA statement. It was the community's assessment of the practitioners of elections. They are the ones that developed the statement. They're the ones that said safe and secure election. They brought it to me, said, what do you think, boss? And I was like, hey, it's your statement. I, I happen to agree with it, but it's not mine to approve. They issued it. I amplified it. It gets attributed back to me. I don't think anybody regrets anything along the way. And everyone that I know still stands by that uh, statement. You were fired for it, though. Probably among other things. Um, but yes, that tends to be the single, you know, the straw breaking the camel's back. And what did that do to your life? Uh, well, I was suddenly unemployed yes. uh, and brought a lot of attention my way and to the agency's way, which, you know, typically, you know, an agency like CISA only gets in the news for bad things, but it kind of turned things over uh, pretty significantly. And from whether it's a media or just a public uh, persona, thank God it was in the middle of COVID. So I could go out to the grocery store and not be uh, uh, harassed both positively and negatively because of wearing a mask and a hat. But uh, it was uh, it was pretty disruptive. And did you were were you the recipient of threats? Did you I was getting them anyway. And then uh, after I was on 60 Minutes, they really took off after a, a show 
uh, a right wing show, you know, talked about me being a traitor and uh, it really took off and, and a number of threats and I had to have a security guard with a gun in front of the house for a couple of months. That must have been incredibly disturbing to your wife. Yeah, we had to leave the house for a couple of days. We had to kind of get out of town for a little while and it it was unnerving where, you know, you can't have your kids play around in the front yard. Um, but, you know, we... We they died down. We worked through it, and you know we're we're more kind of confident, and comfortable. But but things pop up every day. There's always a little something that you kind of get, kind of set your uh, your hair on end. And these are not the conversations you want to have with your kids. But you have to walk, you know, talk to them about maintaining situational awareness when you're outside, and and you know reintroducing the stranger danger concept. I mean, they run from what to what in age? Twelve to three. And so they're young. Between. I mean, yes. it must be very hard for them to understand. What, what about your wife, who was just as happy with you as the uh, cybersecurity guy at Microsoft? I mean, were there moments when she said, what, what have we done here? She, she knew what was at stake. And, you know, I don't want to put words in her mouth necessarily, but I think she understands that what I was doing was important and what I did needed to be done. And so whatever the trade-offs to date that, that we've had were worth it and we do it again. But that's, you know, knowing what we know now and we'll, you know, well, what we know now is that this thing evolved and erupted on January 6th. And you see a through line mm-hmm. between the activities that were done, that were, um, launched before the election to discredit the process and what happened on January 6th. Yeah, we've, we've, I've talked about this in the past where we, uh, you know, fully anticipated this is how a disinformation operation works. You identify the issue, you agitate, you get it mainstream, then you get boots on the ground. And, you know, there were a few key moments along the way. I think, you know, the Proud Boys stand back and stand by. The pres- President the pre- Trump's right. comment in the debate. Yep. Uh, his his tweet about uh, January 6th, it will be wild. You know, there were all these different moments along the way that, that were changing the rules and, and establishing a permission structure where political violence was acceptable. And then through that, you then radicalize and then you activate. And, and January 6th was that activation of, of, of uh, you know, the political violence in the streets taking place. And and I remain convinced that 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 was not a uh, a, a one off. That that was the beginning of uh, so, or a prelude to something much more concerning, where uh, we have a decentralized approach now. And you look at some of the elections that are taking place in statewide office in twenty two for secretaries of state. In right now in Georgia, yeah. you have candidates for office that say they would not have. Uh, certify the 2020 election. You have you have two candidates for governor in, in Pennsylvania and uh, Arizona, Republican candidates that that have promised to decertify the 2020 election, which is not a thing, by the way. Right, they can't. But nonetheless, yeah. yes. So, but so, it does have uh, it does have implications for 2024 for sure. You know, my concern is that once democratic norms are shredded. They're very hard to reassemble. And I know you had frustrations, not just with President Trump, but to some degree with President Biden over some of of his comments relative to the law that was passed in Georgia and his comments down in Georgia. Well, and it goes beyond just the the, this is Jim Crow in a coat and tie or whatever it was. It was more questioning the legitimacy of the 22 election. If 
because of some of the state laws that were proposed or passed if we didn't pass the Voting Rights Act and, and the various pieces of legislation in H.R. 1 that were proposed, which is the kind of the large voting uh, bill that, that the House had worked up, that, the again, the legitimacy of 22 would be in question. And I see this as a line you cannot cross. You cannot preemptively question the legitimacy of an election. That is just... N- that is not a path to success here. Now, you know, you've made the point about on the kind of the back end concern. Yeah, that's my concern. The voter nullification aspects of it or the, the potential for that by giving authorities that are essentially beholden to the legislature the ability to obviate local election authorities uh, and replace local election authorities just squares with what we've heard from Trump which right. is, you know, find me the 11,000, right. whatever number of votes I need. I'm, you know, that's what concerns me. Yeah. Not just whether people can vote, but whether their votes will be fairly counted. Right. I mean, on the front end, though, right, you, you see this as historic turnout, the early voting numbers. In Georgia, yes. In Georgia, specifically. So, you know, I, you know the particip- participation piece is... You know, I, I think some of those criticisms or concerns have not necessarily proven out. But to because there have been workarounds to, you know, a lot of them, whether you can bring water to people online yeah. and so on. But I do think some of that language was overblown and unhelpful. Yes. Uh, I, I agree with you on this. But some of the concerns are, are legit. And I think they're these back end concerns. And, but look at what happened. I think this was yesterday, Monday. David Perdue in his final mm-hmm. uh, Trump's candidate stump, for governor. Yeah. Stump speech. And he's asked, you know, is he going to accept, if he loses, is he going to accept the outcome? And he's like, well, depends on if there's fraud or not. So yeah. you're, you're seeing it Republican on Republican political violence right. already. Yes. I am significantly concerned. Again, I think I under, understate this, but there's no accountability mechanism really for introducing, undermining confidence into uh, in an election into the, the conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it is just now part of the pitch that, that the, on, particularly on the, the GOP side in a number of these swing states, that, that it's, it's questionable. We don't know. We mm-hmm. don't know what's going to happen. It's these, these and machines. And let me just ask you, you worked with secretaries of state across the country, Republicans and mm-hmm. Democrats. In the main, what was your experience with them? Well, I, so... If you've seen a state in the way they conduct an election, you've seen one state and how they conduct the election. So every state's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. There are a number of states in the U.S. that have independently elected secretaries of state. So they're political creatures and operatives amongst themselves. And, and then you have others that are either just senior career officials mm-hmm. or, or they're politicals that are appointed. But, you know, particularly in the run-up to 2020, and I'm not as close to the wheel today— uh, but in 2020, we had strong relationships from really from either side of and I'm not just talking Republicans, Democrats, but I'm talking like Republicans way out there and Democrats way out there. We had a working relationship because we all understood what was at stake. And that was democracy. so your point is that that has been the norm. But now when you have candidates who are running expressly on the platform that there was something untoward about the last election it creates concerns about whether that same assiduousness about the elections are going to hold. Well, I, you know, I think whether me personally or CISID broke the seal on, you know, we had a good thing going for 20. And then by coming out and, you know, being a part of this, uh, you know, speaking truth to power on what was happening out in the election, out in election land, you know, some, 
I think there were some election officials that did not like that. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted the Texas suit to, to move forward and go to the Supreme Court. And that's how the, that should have been the regular order of things, regular than commenting on uh, the, the lack of uh, mm-hmm. any sort of uh, malicious activity directed at the election. So, you know. Do you think that Trump, I mean, he's, you mentioned the Georgia race. We're recording this as votes are being right. cast, where the Secretary of State Raffensperger, who uh, challenged the president, and refused to uh, to uh, yield to the president's demands relative to the election, is running against a candidate the president put up against him, Congressman Jody right. Heiss. Is this just retribution, or is this preparation, in your view, for 2024? I think both can be true, but it's absolutely retribution. I mean, and just step back and think about Raffensperger for a minute. I mean, just, he had every incentive in the world to find the votes he would be a Republican hero. He would probably be on a short list of 24 candidates had uh, President Trump been uh, in the White House in 2020, continued through. But no, I mean, again, country over party. He did the right thing. And we are where we are. And he's being penalized for it. I think as you look downstream, downrange 2024, whether it's Trump running again or someone else, I think there are legitimate concerns right now about several states and the the slate of electors that could come out of those states. But you know, Mastriano in, in Pennsylvania has said that uh, you know, he, he will force everybody in the state to re-register to vote. He is responsible for appointing the Secretary of State. It's not in Who administers elections, yes. Right. He's, the new, uh, he's the newly nominated Republican candidate for governor there. Right. And then you've got, uh, you know, down in Florida, you've got a secretary of state also appointed by Governor DeSantis, who is a stop the stealer. You've got Arizona, where the, the if you recall that video of uh, the live shot of Ducey getting a call from the president as he was signing the, the, the certification slate. You know, there are really disconcerting, which is a incredible understatement, signals out there that uh, that that this thing is we're not on the right track that there are some serious threats to democracy taking place right now, 22, not just 24, but right now uh, that, that people need to wake up and we need to you know, first have, ask ourselves that question, do we want to be a democracy? And if we do, then we need to start acting like it. Well, that is an eloquent plea and a good place to stop. Thank you for your service and for the sacrifices that were associated with it that you could not have imagined uh, when you began your public service career, however many, 15 years ago. So keep your voice loud and strong. It's an important one. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.